Good morning. It's good to see everybody. This is the first time I've had the opportunity to teach in this setting for a while, in this room. It's always a challenge for me when I teach one time to pick a lesson because it's not like you're going through a book and you just keep going. So I picked a subject, but it's going to relate to a passage, and we are going to look at it topical. And the subject that we're going to look at is the subject of contentment. It's something I struggled with personally over the years. I'm doing much better at it now. God has done some things to help me along the way. And I, but I think, you know, as I thought about, you know, what to teach on, I, I've become involved in the counseling ministry. And one of the things that I've noticed quite regularly in, in dealing with that is that a lot of the people that come in for counseling are not content with their life. And that's one of the reasons they're in counseling. So... That's one of the reasons I picked this, and I figured that if I had trouble with it, if all the people in counseling have trouble with it, there's probably somebody else here today that may need some some work in this area. So that's the subject we're going to look at. And preparing the lesson, I did a search on some surveys just to see what the world at large, how content they were, and some of the surveys I saw were on jobs and careers. How many people do you think, what percent of people do you think are satisfied with their jobs? Yeah, you're all on the right path. It's somewhere around 20, 30%, as high as 40 in some surveys, but not very many. A lot of people are dissatisfied with their jobs. How about their marriages? How many people are satisfied with their marriages? We know that the average is marriage is 50% fail. That's statistically 50% fail, and that's close to the same percentage as the church marriages fail, or close to 50%. So it's very, very sad. So if you take that and then multiply it by dissatisfaction, some people stay together no matter what, even though they're not satisfied. So it's probably closer to 60 to 70% of nationally marriages are, are not satisfied. I saw one survey that said that there's little difference between the happiness and contentment of people making 25 or 30,000 as there is people making 100 to 200,000. And I thought, you know, well, a lot of people say if I only did had this much money, I'd be satisfied, I'd be content, and statistics don't bear that out. There's not much difference between money of whether somebody's in fact, if you look at the rich and famous of this world, you would say the opposite's probably true. The more money you make, sometimes it looks like the more discontented people are. I think it was Will Rogers that said, when asked how much is enough, a little bit more. And that that's some of, we all struggle, I think, sometimes with that, and that attitude. And I think the culture that we live in makes it even harder. I know uh, my brother uh, Lorenzo has told me and others that from people that have gone on missionary trips to El Salvador and on Honduras, it amazes them how the people there can seem to be so happy and living in what we would consider horrible conditions. And they can seem to have more contentment sometimes than we do living here in the prosperity of our country. So I think that says something about our culture. And when you look at our culture and you look at the things that affect that attitude, I think of the media, especially when you look at the advertisement and the media, they understand this and they exploit it. When you think about how the ads and the commercials and everything cater to our desire to have more, to want more, we're not pretty enough, we need this, 
line of clothing, we need this type of car, we need a bigger house, whatever. The media is very good at exploiting that. But it's not just physical or financial things that we're not content with. Married people are not uh, always content. Unmarried people are lonely and dissatisfied with where they're at in their life. You've got people that have jobs that they're not satisfied. You have people that don't have jobs and aren't satisfied. So circumstances don't necessarily dictate whether you're content or not. Um, so I think that we would all acknowledge that this attitude is not just pervasive in our culture, but that it has infiltrated the church body and that Christians struggle with this concept as well. And that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at the subject of contentment. It is a biblical word. And you start looking at passages that bring this idea up. One I found was 1 Timothy 6.6. 6. Paul told Timothy, you all can finish this, godliness with contentment is what? Great gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Verse 8 he said, and having food and clothing, let us be content. That's a pretty basic staples, isn't it? Food and clothing, be content. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 13, verse 5 said, Be content with whatever you have. For he said, I will never leave you or forsake you. I found a passage in Luke 3 that John the Baptist replied when some soldiers asked him how to show true repentance. He replied, Be content with your wages. So contentment is a biblical theme, and that's what we're going to look at. I think it's a virtue I've always thought of it as a virtue, but it's also, as you can see from the passages, a command. It's something we are commanded to do from Scripture. It's not an option for Christians. We are called to be content with our jobs, our spouses, our health, our circumstances, whatever we find ourselves. But I think we can safely say that sometimes we're far removed from that. And if you take Christians who complain into consideration, then I know that we're not content. Because have you ever heard yourself complain or other Christians complain? Complaining is a sign that you're not content. Because if you're complaining, you are saying, God, I'm not happy with where you're allowing me to be in my life right now. And we could look at a lot of extreme examples. I looked at uh, some extreme examples of it. But I decided not to even go there because that's not what the Bible is about, is it? The Bible is personal. It's to us. It's speaking to us. And so what I want us to do today is to really soul search into our own hearts and minds and find out whether we have that attitude of contentment. And the text we're going to use is Philippians chapter 4. So you can be turning there. Philippians chapter 4. We'll be looking at the verses 10 through 19. And to put this passage in context, you have to remember where the Apostle Paul is when he was writing this. He was in prison in Rome. When you read Acts 28, you'll learn that he was probably incarcerated in some type of apartment or under house arrest. He was under constant Roman guard. He's unable to work, and he probably has a very meager existence financially. He's awaiting trial before Nero, this was no doubt one of the loneliest and hardest times in Paul's life. In the midst of this, the Philippians had sent him a gift. And Paul, as he concluded this letter to the Philippians, wanted to thank them for their gift. And the text we're getting ready to read is the response that he writes to them for this gift. So Philippians chapter 4, I'll begin reading in verse um, 10, and I'll go through 19. Paul said, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, 
that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstance I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. But I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphrodites what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to my God. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, as we begin looking at this passage of Scripture, we pray that you would open our eyes to the message that Paul has for us today. May we learn the secrets of being content, Father, so that we uh, may bring you glory in our lives throughout all circumstances and be completely satisfied in you. In Jesus' name, amen. In verse 11, Paul says an amazing thing as he begins this section of Scripture. He says, I have learned to be content. He didn't say, I am learning or I'm in the process of learning, which he did a lot of times on different things. But he said, I have learned, past tense. That, to me, is a remarkable statement. He didn't leave any you know, ambiguity in there. He had learned that secret. And I thought about that in my own life. I can't say that. I can say sometimes I'm content. Maybe even most of the time I'm content, but I can't say that I've learned the secret of being content, that I have it mastered. And that, that would be my goal in life. And Paul gives us that picture of a man who is completely and utterly content amidst any situation. The word content goes back to the Greek word, which means self-sufficient, to be satisfied, to have enough. The actual secular term indicated a certain independence, a lack of necessity, no necessity for outside aid or help. Paul's not using that word per se in that sense. He's, he's saying that in the sense that because everything Paul does is with the gospel, with God in mind. And he says, through God, I can do it because God strengthens me. So he's saying I'm self-sufficient in the sense of with the power of God, I can be content. So in the biblical terms, contentment is not self-sufficiency. It's sufficiency along with the Holy Spirit and God's help. And that's where he's going. In verse 12, he says he's learned that secret. The secret, that word secret, and was used in secular writings to the term of being initiated into mystery religions or being initiated into the pagan cults, which held these certain secrets only the initiated learned. And I think you can basically relate that to the fact that the world can't understand this. This secret that Paul learned is something you learn through Christ and the Holy Spirit's indwelling presence and help. But that's how he was able to master it because he learned the secret with the power of the Holy Spirit's help. So we know that our society is awash with discontentment and it spills over into the church. And through this section, Paul's going to give us five principles of contentment. 
principle number one we find in verse 10. He said, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Principle number one is that a contented person is confident in God's provision. A contented person is confident in God's provision. Now, when you go back and put all of the context of what happened, it was happening in, in these writings, Paul, it's been 10 years since Paul's ministry in Philippi had resulted in the founding of the church. And it's recorded in Acts chapter 16, starting in verse 11, if you ever want to go back and read that. You remember that Paul and others were traveling and they met a businesswoman named Lydia who was a seller of purple and that she was converted, her whole household was converted, and her companions were converted. That was the beginning of the church at Philippi. In the early days of the church in Acts, you can read accounts of where there was a slave girl that had a demon, was demon-possessed, and Paul cast out that demon out of the slave girl, and her owners got mad at Paul because that slave girl had demonic powers and was, was using them to be a fortune teller, and they were making money for the owners. And that slave girl, once she did not have that demon in her, they lost the money, so the the men, the owners, got mad at Paul. They threw him into prison. They beat him while in prison. That's the account where the Philippian jailers were there witnessing an earthquake, and the chains came off of Paul and the other prisoners, and the Philippian jailer was converted. This was the account of the beginning of the church at Philippi. So they had a rich, deep relationship with the Apostle Paul in that church. And that was how the church got started. Now it's ten years later. It says that they had supported Paul at that time. But now it's ten years later. And we can get from the experience, from the writings here, that there's been a long period of time between their support and their expression of love towards Paul. We don't know why, but they had lost contact with him or whether they were too poor to help. But for some reason, we can see that from verse 10, that it says that he revived his concern for them. So what's the point? The point is that Paul's attitude, he didn't hold any of this against them. He didn't say, how come you haven't been supporting me? It's been a long time. What's the problem? He hadn't been sending out letters, asking for help. Paul's attitude was a reflection of the patient confidence in God's provision. There was no panic, no attempt to manipulate people, taking matters into his own hands. Paul was content because he knew a sovereign God was working all things out to the good of those who believe, Romans 8.28. He trusted God in his season to work it out. That actual word there where it talks about lacking opportunity is kairos. It means season. It wasn't chronological time it was saying that they didn't have the opportunity it wasn't the season for them to help we don't know what that meant exactly we don't know whether it was because they were poor or they just didn't know the opportunity was was not available but for whatever reason and paul understood that because it wasn't within god's plan but now it was there was opportunity it was the season of time again and that providential care is what Paul really understood and what one of the principles that he's sharing with us that allows us to get through difficult circumstances in our life and still be content is because we know that God is sovereign and he's, his provision is going forth even in the midst of our problems. Providence is a word that simply means to provide and that God will provide and he does. It doesn't encompass just provision in the sense of financially but directing all aspects of our life. 
How does God work out his providence? There's two primary ways that we see God's providence coming to pass. One is by direct miracles. And that miraculous way, you know, the parting of the Red Sea, the receiving sight from, you know, to the blind. Those are miraculous works of providence. But in our times, the more often than not, God uses circumstances of the natural world, but he miraculously orchestrates all of these events and things to take place to pr- promote his own purposes, to do his will. And as I thought about that, I thought about how much easier sometimes it would be if I could just speak something into existence. That almost seems easier than to actually orchestrate throughout time and years and myriads of events and circumstances and people and relationships to get God's providence purpose that way. Isn't that just as big a miracle, if not more? And I think we all could share providential things that have gone on in our life that we can be a testimony to that. I thought about the story of Joseph, of course, you know, in the Bible. It's very obvious providence of God and how he orchestrated all the way from his brothers throwing him in a pit and selling him into slavery, going into foreign land, being falsely accused, thrown into prison. And what had all happened because of all that? He ends up being in a high position in the land. And Joseph's words himself to his brothers was, As for you, you meant evil against me, but for God, he meant it for good in order to bring about this result to preserve many people alive. So with all of his life circumstances, stuff that happened over years was all for one purpose, to preserve many people alive. He used him to promote his providence, but all those circumstances, that's miraculous. And I think we could all testify to how that's done. I tried to come up with an example in my own life to share, and it was very hard because I have so many, and it was very hard to come up with a personal one to share. But I think one of the more recent ones would be how God used my cancer experience to bring about his providence in my life. And I always believed in the sovereignty of God for many years. Even when I was very, very sick, I didn't ever doubt that. But when you're going through the midst of a problem, do you really see God's purpose? You may know about it and you may look for it, but do you actually see it? It's usually looking in hindsight, we can look back. And that's what I have done is look back and ask myself, how did God use my experience of going through cancer to promote his providence in my life? And I thought about so many different ways. But when I was in the chemo chair getting eight hours of chemicals pumped in me. I wasn't really seeing it. When I was laying on the hospital bed, violently throwing up for days, and they couldn't stop it, by the way, if you want a private room, just throw up. (laughs) They give give you a private room. Um, I didn't understand God's purpose at that time. When I remember sitting at my desk one day looking at the bills that had come in, $150,000 worth of bills. And we were on a Samaritan Ministries a share program, but you never know for sure whether there's going to be 100% money available. So I'm thinking, how much of that am I going to have to pay? How much you know, percent of that is I, am I going to have to pay? And is God going to meet those needs? And, you know, what's the purpose in this, God? But looking back, it's so easy to see how God brought me closer to him, how my faith was increased because every bill was paid. I mean, a 100% of all those bills were paid except for a few prescription-type things. 
that increased my faith dramatically in the God that I serve. I think about the fact that how close my wife and I became and during this time. We, we drew closer together because of what we went through as a family. I thought about the fact that my priorities, my whole work situation and priorities changed because of it. And I live a much less stressful life today because of what I went through. And I think that's a good thing. I made some very good friends during that time that reached out to me, Ed Ellis being one of them who had gone through cancer and reached out to me. And we're dear friends today because of that. We would not have even known each other probably. I believe that the seeds of my involvement in the counseling ministry became as a result of that. Those are all providential things that God used a circumstance in my life. And Paul is saying we can be content because we understand. We may not see it, but we understand that God's sovereign providential care of us is with us through all those circumstances. So that's the first principle. The second principle that we see is in the first words of verse 11. Not that I speak from want. Paul is saying that a contented person is satisfied with little. He gives a disclaimer, not from want. He's taking their money, he's taking their, their thing, and he's rejoicing about it, but not from want, he says. He doesn't want them to think that he is in want of anything because he's learned to be content. I think if you think about Paul's situation and where he was and what was going on, He's rejoicing, but not because he's getting a check or some cash or some food. He's rejoicing because of the gift that's being given. He's not in want. To be able to say, I'm not in want, that would be hard for me. I quoted an earlier statement of Paul when he told Timothy, with food and clothing, let us be content. I think one of the great ills of our society is that we have confused our needs and our desires or our wants, and we've got those two kind of mixed up. I used to teach a personal finance class at the bank I worked at, and I used Larry Burkett's information, if any of you are familiar with him, and I just rearranged and took the direct references of God out of it, but used that to teach the class. And one of the things that I would always do is have people put down all these things in their budget, and then which one of them are needs and which ones of them are wants. And even if within categories of Clothing and car and housing, there's a big difference between what we need and what we want in those within those areas. And try to get people thinking about that because it plays a big impact on your budget. But I think our society has got a little bit of that mixed up. When I originally started writing this lesson, it was about five years ago, and the banking crisis was just unfolding, and the economy was going south in a hurry. And I remember watching the media and watching everybody point fingers at who was to blame. Was it the bankers? Was it the mortgage lenders? Was it Barney Frank and the politicians? And everybody was pointing fingers at everybody at who was at fault. And I remember thinking very clearly that I was upset because everybody was avoiding the real problem. And I feel that the real problem was millions of people in our country and around the world, were living beyond their means, beyond what their ability to repay. Yes, there was greed in the corporations. There was crooked politicians and crooked mortgage brokers and bankers and greedy bankers. But without the demand for that, that wouldn't have happened. The demand was being satisfied because of 
a country's discontentment and willingness to use credit to buy and buy and buy things that they really shouldn't have been doing because they didn't have the ability to pay for it. Now, did innocent get people get hurt? I don't want to minimize this because innocent people got hurt because of that crisis. People got upside down in their houses because the whole bubble burst and came falling down. So young couples and, and others ended up being upside down in their houses, not being able to sell. But that was a result of not just the politicians and the bankers and the greed, but the ill use of credit in our society because we're trying to buy things on credit. Now, in this personal finance class, one of the things I did was really make people look hard at the way they use credit. I actually did a little history study of credit in our society. And if you look back before the 1920s, there was really hardly any credit in society. And then after the Depression, gradually people started intervening these products of credit. I'm, I'm 52 years old, and I remember I had to think. 52 years old, when I bought my first car, it was a three-year loan. My dad almost threw a fit that I was going to get a three-year loan on a car. That was almost unheard of. Now what's the standard? Five or seven or six? Yeah, I mean, it's five is like the minimum or, or more. Same thing with housing. Nobody got a home equity loan years ago. You wouldn't put your house in jeopardy, the place where you live. You would never take a risk with your home. Now we all do it, or not, you know, most, most of our society that don't, don't think twice about getting a home equity loan. You know, I did the same thing with all uses of credit, and the credit has expanded, and it's made life a lot easier in our country and made us be able to afford things we wouldn't have been able to afford. But it's all basically satisfying a demand of I want something that I can't pay for now. Now, I'm not saying that we should never use credit, but the Bible says the borrower becomes the lender's slave. I think that's basically a prophetic thing that's happened in our country. So I think you have to wisely look at that. But I think we have to realize that we are a part of the problem individually and as a country, not just look at the greed of other people, but personally look at how we have done that too. So as I thought about this, I thought about how this has affected. It's affected us individually, but it's also affected us in the sense of the church. We're the health and wealth gospel. You think clearly about the health and wealth gospel. They probably don't like the, to look at the Apostle Paul as much of an example for their use of their, to promote their gospel because his life would not match up to what they're, they're teaching. But it's all based about on the fact that a humanistic approach came into the church and said that we need to meet our perceived needs our perceived needs, and the church doctrine then became basically moved to fit that. That's why psychology entered the church and, and the, the reason that feel-good messages all came into the church is because we wanted people to feel good and we wanted to meet their needs, and that's not the Apostle Paul. But the opposite actually has happened as we went in that direction. We have more contentment now. We have less contentment because we didn't follow the biblical standard. I heard somebody liken it to the hamster in the wheel running round and round and round and never getting anywhere. And that's kind of the pace that our society is on. Paul knew that the chief end of man was not to have all his needs met, but to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Because of that, he was satisfied with whatever God allowed him 
to have at the, at the time. I looked at some more scriptures that talked about the attitude of Paul. And one of the ones I looked at was 1 Corinthians 9. And he shares with us there how that men of God that are preaching the word have a right to be paid. But what did Paul do? He refused it. He refused it because he didn't want that to be a hindrance to anybody. That shows you what kind of example Paul was. He used the example of soldiers being supported when they fight wars. But he, and, he, and he said we have a right to that. But he didn't even take it because he didn't want to, to leave any type of negative taste in the mouth. In another passage I looked at, it said that, you know, that he would, he worked day and night. I don't have the reference written down, but it said he worked day and night in order to support himself so that they wouldn't have to. That was the Apostle Paul's idea. And it doesn't mean that, that we all have to do that. It's, he made the case that pastors could be paid. But it shows you an attitude that Paul had that, to meet your needs and show contentment with whatever you have. Don't let the world define your needs. So the third secret of contentment is that a contented person is not dependent on circumstances. Look at the rest of verse 11 and verse 12. He said he learned to be content in whatever circumstances. Wait a minute. 12. Learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means. And I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. So Paul's telling us that the third principle is not to let our circumstances dictate our contentment. And I don't think that anybody is a better example of that than the, than the Apostle Paul. We could go in the book of Acts and go through the list of things in his life that he went through, things that most of us would dare not feel like we could even hold up under. And Paul did it and said that he was content in all those things. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul actually gives a recap of his own life in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And we'll just read his Paul in his own words, recaps his own life. Chapter 11, starting in verse 23. Paul says, Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I more so, in far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews thirty-nine lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressures on me of concern for all the churches. Who is weak without me being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? If I have to boast, I will boast of what pertains to my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, He is who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. In Damascus, the ethnarch under Eretus, the king, was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. And I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and so escaped his hands. That's just a a glimpse of some of the things that happened to Paul. And he says that he had learned to be content 
in all of those horrible circumstances. What was his secret? He doesn't share with us in Philippians exactly what his secret was. He's giving us some principles. But I think if you read his other writings, you'll find that one of the main secrets was he didn't dwell on the temporal. Second Corinthians 4.17, Paul said to the Corinthians, For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Colossians 3.2, he said, set your minds on the things above and not on the things of the earth. I think that's why Paul could do all this, because he didn't live in the temporary. He lived in the eternal. He had a heavenly sight on his life and the purposes that he was about. I'm currently counseling a young couple who's having marital problems, and one of the spouses was not content in her marriage, and therefore, as a result of that, she committed adultery and they came to counseling because they want to restore and it was very obvious that this was if a Christian a very immature Christian who didn't have a heavenly eyesight she was so indwelled with the world and her job and her friends and all the things that this earth has to offer that she was not content and I think that's where Paul is telling us that if we have a heavenly thought process if our eyes are on eternity then it steers us in the direction of contentment but if we follow the things of the world we're not going to find contentment in some ways paul's life was was like a bad dream but he was content because he trusted in the sovereign providential god who was directing his steps he became satisfied with little he didn't let the world dictate his needs and wants and he kept his eyesight on another kingdom, just like in Hebrews, we've been looking at Abraham, looking for that city that was not of this earth. The fourth principle of contentment Paul shares with us is a contented person is strengthened by, by divine power. A contented person is strengthened by divine power. Verse 13 is a very simple verse that has amazing repercussions. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And we know that scripture, we quote that scripture, and but we don't always live like that scripture says. And I think the best example of this is in Paul's life, and I'm not going to go there because I don't want to go over time, but you all know the story of Paul when he says that he had a thorn in the flesh and that he asked the Lord three times to remove that thorn in the flesh. And what did God was God's answer to him? My grace is sufficient for for you. That is, God will give you the strength to deal with it. And Paul dealt with it. And he was contented, even though he had a thorn in the flesh. We don't know what that was. I was taught for many years that it was an eye problem of some sort. I've heard other good commentaries and pastors teach that it might have been some type of demon that through false teachers followed him around tormenting him within his churches whatever it was it was serious enough that paul prayed three times for the lord to remove it and the lord said no my grace is sufficient so paul tells us that the power of god will help us get through any and all circumstances and when i say get through most of us get through anyway right we get through whatever we have to get through the difference is how you get through it. Do you get through it with an attitude of contentment? Do you get through it with an attitude of joy? 
You know, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. That takes the power of God to do. We get through it. And you know, non-Christian people get through cancer treatments. They get through problems, but they don't get through it without complaining and having a sense of peace and joy that God gives. He can only, he's the only one that can do that. The fifth principle that he shares in this passage comes from verses 14 through 19. I'll read them again. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Now, here's an important verse, verse 17. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. But I have received everything in full, have an abundance, I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God, and my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Remember the picture here. Paul's in prison. He's under house arrest, probably living on a very meager existence. He has great needs. The Philippian church hear of it, send a gift through Epaphrodites to Paul, probably has food, clothing, and money. Remember, they're poor. The Macedonian church was poor. Paul tells us that in 2 Corinthians. So it's a great sacrifice on their part to do this. And when they start reading this part of the letter, I wondered sometimes what they might think. Paul started out by saying, I don't have any wants. I've learned to be content. I can endure anything because of God. If they quit reading right there, they might think Paul was ungrateful. But he wasn't because he says... In our text in verse 14, that he turns the corner, he says, Nevertheless, even though I am, that's a train of thought of change. He's not ungrateful. It says that he's joyful. He says that they've done a noble thing. He told them earlier that he rejoiced greatly. Why? Not because he was concerned for himself, but because he was concerned for them. Verse 17, Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. Paul's principle here is that contentment comes when we become more concerned with others than we do ourselves. And I think that's a very important principle. If you talk to people who are depressed and going through a lot of problems and they're they're down, a lot of the times you will find that they become very inward focused. And you, if you can help them become outward focused and thinking about other people, they will soon diminish what the problems that they're dealing with. And that's a very important thing. And Paul understood this principle of sowing and reaping. He understood that by them giving the gift, he was being blessed by it, but he was so happy because he knew the blessing they were going to get by giving. That's why he was, he, was, he was really joyful over their spiritual account was being accredited by this gift. And... Sometimes we, we even hinder that. I know when I was 24 years old, Terry was pregnant with our third child. We're from Kentucky. <laughs> and when I, I was between jobs, I had quit a job and was starting another one and didn't have health insurance. And our, I was always very money-managed oriented because I didn't have any. I had very little money, but I managed it well. So I went to the doctors in the hospital And I made payment plans, set them up way early in the pregnancy so that by the time the baby would get here, we would have everything paid for. And 
It wasn't as expensive as it is now, but it was still pretty expensive for someone with no insurance and very little income. But the point of this story is that somebody in our Sunday school class found out I didn't have insurance, and they took up an offering. I don't know if Terry remembers it, but they took up an offering and gave us a check for $1,000. And I was prideful. I didn't I didn't want their money. I was going to say, I've got payment plans. i got it in control. Y'all keep your money. I don't need it. And a very wise young man told me, don't refuse the blessing that these people are getting by giving that money to you. So I graciously humbled myself and took that money and learned something from that. And Paul knew that. He knew that account of reaping and sowing. So he was very happy for these people. He's grateful for the gift, but he's even more grateful for the spiritual welfare of the people that were giving it. Verse 18, he called it a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice. Words straight from the Old Testament sacrificial system. Paul knew that their gift ultimately was to God and not to them. And God would not let their needs go unmet. And as we close... I know I've probably shared this illustration before, but this one is so dramatic in my own life that it means a lot to me because my own mother was an example of this. Have you all ever met someone that you're scared to ask, how's your day or how's it going? You're laughing, so I assume you probably have because it sometimes turns into a long, drawn ordeal and you really just want them to say, fine, go away. (laughs) I know that's not the Christian thing to do, but I think we've, because you're laughing, I think we've been there. My mother, sadly, was one of those people for a long time. She was a Christian, I believe, but her story started about 15 years ago when my grandmother was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease, and she was an only child, and she spent many years taking care of her, watching her go downhill, going through all the frustrations that many of you can identify with that and the strain and stress that puts on you. And then she, when she died, um, my mother immediately became sick right after that. And when she got sick, the doctors had a hard time diagnosing it. She ended up being diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome, and she just didn't have the energy to walk to the grocery. It was just, And she got every illness that came around, she got. She was sick all the time. And because of that, she became bitter. She became um, basically wallowed in self-pity. And it was, you know, even amidst this time, I think she had an eye surgery that went bad and hemorrhaged, and she went blind in one eye. So needless to say, she had a really rough time. And I'm sad to say that there was times when I didn't want to talk to her because I spent 45 minutes on the phone just listening to all of her problems over and over again. And there was just no sense of joy in her life and discontentment. And... An amazing thing happened to my mother. She switched churches and went to a more Bible-believing church in town and became involved in ministry. And she ended up becoming the head of a women's ministry, a single women's ministry. And she started helping these single women out in town. And it was a culture that she was never experienced with and just became engrossed in helping these young ladies. And it became so big that churches were referring other churches referring people to her to help and she was coordinating benefits and helping people and bringing them to church and starting Bible studies and helping them with their rent and it was just an amazing ministry. She had a phone in her house that the church gave her because they were being bombarded with so many calls at church and I noticed one day it just hit me 
when I talked to her, she was talking about this ministry. She wasn't talking about her problems. She was talking about these other people and their problems and how she was trying to help them. She became more joyful. She became more spiritual. She became, and I think, you know, as you serve and do the things the Bible's telling you to do, it benefits you in many ways. Um, but that was a real personal example of how I watched personally someone apply this principle of seeking others' welfare over themselves. And a side byproduct of that was her own contentment. So that was a very amazing thing to happen. But before I close, I've got to make a disclaimer because I don't want anybody to think that being content does not mean that if we, we never try to improve our life. If we're unemployed, we still look for a job. We don't say, okay, I'm content and sit back. We look for a job. The Bible says you don't work, you don't eat. You know, you go out and you find a job. If your marriage is not satisfactory, you work at it. You try to make it better according to biblical standards. If, there's, if we're sick, we go to the doctor. The Bible doesn't say that we're be to, to be content to the point where we do nothing. We can do things to improve our life and still be content knowing that God's providential hand is on our life. And for some reason we won't understand, this is where we're at right now. And if we do these things, I think we can be more content and we can be more pleasing to the Lord because of it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together. Thank you for the Apostle Paul and the example that he gives us. Father, when I think of my own life, I am humbled Father, because of my lack of contentment in many areas at many times in my life. And I pray that you would give us all the strength and all the will and the desire to live up to the standards of your word. Father, may we not fall short because we have not tried. Father, may you help us to to really discipline ourselves in the area of godliness so that we may be more like your son, Jesus. Father, may our attitudes be like Paul's, and may we learn to be content, Father, knowing that your hand is in our life, Father, and that you care for us in ways that we don't even see. And may we be more like your son because of it. In Jesus' name, amen.